Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Romans chapter 2, verse 17, down to verse 29. And you'll need to pay close attention, because the Apostle Paul, in this passage, he is beginning to really... um, Uh, tear apart any sort of security that we find in religiousness. Remember the Apostle Paul in chapter number 1, he's told us what this is all about. He said in verse number 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Then from there, he said, here's how this right unrighteousness This ungodliness, here's how it looks. That the creature rebels against the Creator. We make God our enemy. We don't want God to be our God. We want Him to be our genie. Just do what we say. And we exalt ourselves and other things, feelings, ideas, materialism. We exalt all these things to be our God instead of Him. Any any God except the one true God as revealed in the Bible. That's really the Spirit of chapter number one. And then it ends chapter number one, this long list of how ungodliness looks. And we talked in chapter number two how you can sense that there are moral, good, upstanding, civil, nice people standing over to the side looking at the really bad people going, that's right. That's right, Paul. You tell them how bad those people are. Remember that? In verse number one, that's what he says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, Whosoever thou art that judgest. He throws all of us into the bucket. He says, no, it's not just that these really bad, evil, wicked, pagan people are going to be judged by God. Man, but even people who know to do right, they know they're supposed to live right, they're upstanding moral citizens, even they will be judged by God. And when they're judged by God, they will be judged just the same. Well, why? Because they hold the truth And they suppress it, that's why. And now at the final part of this chapter, he turns his attention to those who are religious. Those who would hold up in front of God. I I won't be judged by God because I have religion. And I go to church on Sunday. And I have values. And I read the Bible. And I know the Ten Commandments. I, I I won't be judged by God. Surely I'll miss the judgment. So now he turns his attention to them. Verse number 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew that restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. Okay, so, so look. You're called a Jew. You rest in the law. You make your boast of God. You know his will. You even approve things that are... You even have good discernment. That's what he's saying. Look at verse number 19. And art. He's talking to the same person. And you are, or and art, confident that thou thyself art a guide to the blind, a light to them that are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast a form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Really big words. Words like this. Guide, light, instructor, a teacher. 
know, this, is what, this is what they were. Those who were religious, they lived according to the law. This is what they thought they were to all of those who did not have the law. Verse number 21. So thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through the breaking of the law, dishonorest thou God. Okay, so look here. This is the whole idea of the religious person. All these really bad pagan people are dishonoring the God who made them. Right? That's their claim. And now Paul is saying, there's not, not just really bad pagan people, even good religious people who are making their boast of themselves are actually dishonoring God. Ouch. Tough message then, right? Verse number 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. And that's the sting to you and to me this morning. The name of God is blasphemed to the Gentiles through us. Verse 25, For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? Here's what he's getting to, verse 28 and 29. Listen to it. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Our Heavenly Father, use your word this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Everyone in this life wants some sort of security. Everyone in this life wants this comfortable sense, this confident sense that everything will be okay. You see this word in verse number 19. Look at the phrase, and are confident. Do you see that word confident? And are confident. This is what you find your security in. This is where you find your identity. You find your confidence. You find your security. You find your identity in what? In that you are called a Jew. In that you rest in the law of God. In that you're a teacher. You know more about God's law than other people. In that you have the religious signs. You go to church. You were baptized. You take the Lord's commandment. He uses the word circumcision. We'll get to that in a second. But you use all of these outward religious rituals or traditions or signs and you find confidence, security, identity in these things and you think 
that simply because you have this sign, you have these labels, you go to church, you are religious, just because you have that does not mean that you will not be judged by God. That's what he's saying. This is what he's teaching. The security that we all desire, the security that we all really want, you cannot find in yourselves, that's what he says at the end, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You see that verse, verse number 29. Whose praise is not of men, but of God. Security or confidence does not come from the working out, the traditions, the religiousness of man. It only comes from God. This is what he's already said. He said this in chapter number one. That the only way to miss the judgment of God is to by faith, through grace, have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And only through Christ do you actually miss this judgment from God. And yet, man, so many times we try to find security. We try to find confidence. We try to find identity in all kinds of other things. We try to find economic security. And you're thinking that if we stash enough money away, then we'll be set and we are in no financial danger at all. And we think that somehow this makes us more safe. We find confidence there. We try to find security in our job or in our performance at work. We get a job that promises us the future that we so desperately desired and gives us a guarantee that, man, should things go bad, we'll still be okay. So we try to find confidence. We try to build our lives around that, even marital security. Try to find confidence that because we're loved by someone, because we are beloved by someone, faithful partner, a, a marital commitment, that somehow this is enough confidence that we need in this life. And Paul is saying, this is not enough confidence. You don't find confidence for eternity because of what you, uh, because of the relationship that you maintain in this life. You don't have confidence for eternity because you were a good husband or a good wife. You don't find confidence for eternity because of the amount of money you have saved up. You don't find confidence for eternity because you were religious. Well, where is the confidence that we need then for eternity? And Paul has made this his point. This entire chapter, the entire first part, first and second chapter, has been nothing but we cannot be confident in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ Himself. So the person who thinks that they are so sure of themselves who has the law, you know the rules, you understand the Ten Commandments, you can name all of the disciples and the apostles, you can do, man, you can quote the books of the Bible, forward and backward, you are in church. I mean, that is your seat, you know what I mean? We're Baptists, we all have a seat, right? And that is your seat, and you're there every week, even for those of us. Where is our confidence? That's what Paul is asking. Where are you placing your confidence? What are you building your identity on? How secure are you that you are ready for eternity? So notice three ideas, and you have an outline, so you can follow along. I want you to write some notes down, so that way you will remember. You won't remember if you don't make a note, all right? Number one, notice, notice their confidence. Notice their confidence. What, was their, what were they confident in? Look at verse number 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew. 
So, so Paul is specifically, hear me, Paul is specifically addressing a certain group of people. A certain religious group of people. Someone who was Jewish by nature or by heritage or by name. Because God had entrusted to this Jewish nation His moral law. God had done that in the Old Testament. The book of Genesis teaches us this. The book of Exodus teaches us this. That God had entrusted to this nation of people His law. So He says, Behold, thou art called a Jew. So now, now he's talking about what are you confident in? They were confident. Notice A. They were confident in their label. A Jew is a name. A, being Jew by name only is not enough. He says, so you think because you call yourself a Jew, you think because your heritage is Jewish that you will be okay. The Jews thought that their name would be a passport that would get them into eternity. I got my passport right here. Let me show you. Ready? Right? The Jews thought, well, when I, when I get to heaven's gates, all I will need to do is pull out my, my lovely passport, and I'll show this at the gate, and because I show God at the gates of heaven that I am Jewish, then I will be allowed, I will be allowed in. Had the privilege of going out of the country a few times, always coming back into the country as you approach those big gates there at customs, right? You're walking toward those border patrol agents, a little nerve-wracking. They're very intimidating. They're mean-looking folks. As you walk toward them, man, I'm glad I can reach in to my little necklace that I wear. They said, never take that off your neck. I'm going to take this little necklace out. I get my passport out, and I can open it up nice and big. And go, Whew, don't worry, let me in. I am an American citizen. You can't let me in, right? Man, I have confidence that while it's scary, all these big machines, these guns, man, these very intimidating looking officers, man, I can walk toward them with confidence. Why? Because I have, man, I have the right passport. I have the proper paperwork. Let me in. And so what Paul is saying is there's this religious group of people who think that as they move toward eternity, that they will miss the judgment of God because they can pull their passport out and they can go, no, look. No, no, I have the right label. I have the right stickers. I have the right country of origin. I, I have the right flag. Look, you can let me in. You can let me in to eternity, to everlasting life because of the heritage, the label that I have. The Bible uses three names that are indicative of Jewish people. There's a term referred to as the Hebrews, which speaks to their language in particular. There's a term that speaks to Israelites, which speaks to the land that they uh, possessed by promise of God to Abraham. So sometimes they were called Hebrews, sometimes they were called Israelites, and sometimes they were called the Jewish people. So you see three different labels, three different, all of them indicating something different. And the Jewish label, that indication, is actually found because of their unique relationship with God. 2 Kings chapter number 16 is the first place that you'll find that word mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned about a man by the name of Judah. That Judah literally means to praise God. So the word Jew or Jewish people comes from this idea that we are praisers of God. 
So if you were to ask a Jewish person, are you right with God? Are you ready for eternity? What about when you see God and you experience the judgment? We, they would have gone, no, no, don't worry. I'm, I'm Jewish. I have the right passport. I'm a praiser of God. Are you right with God? Well, of course I am. I'm a, I'm a Jew. We do similar things in our day. Are you right with God? Well, of course I am. I'm a Christian. Or are you ready to see God? Well, of course I am. I went to church today. Are, are you ready to see the Lord? Are you prepared for eternity? Well, well, why wouldn't I be? I gave money in the offering. I helped the poor. I was baptized. I've taken communion at the Lord's table. I sang in the choir. I taught a Sunday school class. But are you prepared for eternity? And just like they do, we have the same way. Then we pull these things out and we believe that these things would be the passport that we need in order to be accepted, in order to gain access into eternity. Notice the phrase, make is thy boast of God. Look at verse number 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law. Notice the phrase, and makest thy boast of God. So they were boasting, they were bragging, they were arrogant, they were confident, saying, hey listen, we're better than everyone else, I'm, I'm more ready for eternity than anyone else because of the heritage I have, because of the label that I wear, because I'm Jewish, so that means obviously I'm ready for eternity. The Jew then was no longer, in this sense, the Jew then was no longer in seeing his, his Jewishness as a revelation of God's goodness or a revelation of God's grace, but he's seeing his own identity, his own Jewishness, this unique relationship that God has given to them as an indicator of his own superiority. Of course, I am ready. Obviously, all of these really bad pagan people around me are not ready. Obviously, all these Gentile people are not ready, but I am ready because I have have the proper heritage. I have the proper paperwork. Now Paul is saying to those who believe that simply because of your religiousness, because of your label, because you call yourself a Christian, because you call yourself Jewish, that's the, that's the phrase he's using, because you call yourself a Baptist, because you go to church, because you give money to the poor, simply doing those things is not enough to claim security for all of eternity. So what were they confident in? They were confident first in their label. They were secondly confident in their knowledge. Look what they say. And restest, look at verse 17, and restest in the law. Look at verse number 18. And knowest his, that's speaking of God, and knowest God's will. And so now this term law or his will. They, they, they were confident that God had revealed to them everything that God intended for them to do. I believe the word law in this passage encompasses the, the widest sense of the term, the broadest sense of the word law. They had the knowledge of all that God wanted them to do. You remember that passage in, in John chapter 5? Jesus is talking to those who knew all kinds of Bible verses. They knew all kinds of laws. John chapter 5, verse number 39, Jesus says, And search the Scriptures, for in them ye think that ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me, and he will not come to me that he might have life. Jesus literally is saying the same thing Paul is saying. Simply because you have God's law, 
simply because you have God's Word. Simply because God has revealed Himself to you by way of His commandments or by way of His Word. This is not enough. You think you're going to get into heaven because you have a Bible. And that this will somehow be the reason why God lets you in. And yet, if you have the Scriptures, you should, of all people, know that the Scriptures testify of Jesus Christ, not of our own good works. Ephesians have done, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercies that He saved us. Don't get into heaven because we simply possess the Bible. Having the Bible is not enough. And yet for these people, these religious people, think that they will be ready for eternity simply because they possess the Bible. They were resting, look here, they were resting or confident or secure. They were secure in possessing the Bible or God's law rather than actually keeping it. Rather than actually obeying. It's like having a flashlight and you lose power in your house. You go and you grab the flashlight and you click the button in order to turn the flashlight on, but there's no light. You click it, you hit it a couple times, you click it, and then you untwist the end only to realize there are no batteries inside of the flashlight. You, you have it, you possess it, you got a light, but there's no actual living out of it. He uses the phrase, and knowest his will. He says you have a knowledge, that you have an understanding of what God would have you to do. He says you approvest things more excellent. You see that phrase? Approvest things more excellent. This is verse number 18. He says that, that word, that phrase, approve, that's like good discernment. You have the ability to look at a situation and discern in that situation what is right and what is wrong. You have the ability to look at a situation and quickly tell that's good, that's evil, that's right, that's wrong. You can do this, and yet, notice, notice verse number 19, you're confident that you're a guide of the blind, you're a light to them that are in darkness, you're an instructor of the foolish, you're a teacher of the babes, and which has the form of knowledge and the truth of the law. So you're claiming that simply because you have God's law, simply because you can teach God's law, simply because you've memorized God's law, simply because you come to church and listen to God's law, that this is not enough. And yet for this religious person, it causes them to feel superior to everyone else. If your faith makes you feel superior to those around you, if your faith causes you to put people down in your life, then you are more devoted to a ritual, to a religion, than you are to a relationship. Faith in Jesus Christ is not meant to make you feel superior to other people. The Apostle Paul, he looks at those who are struggling in his life and he says, but by the grace of God, there go I. If it weren't for God's goodness, if it weren't for God's mercy, if it weren't for God's love, I would be doing those exact same things. And in fact, Paul even argues, I did those things and I did much worse than what they are doing. So notice the problem in verse number 21. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. Look at the phrase. Verse 21. Thou therefore which teachest another, Teachest thou not thyself? And here is the problem. 
So with all the advantage to knowing God's law, to discerning God's law, all the advantage to understanding what God would want you to do in this life, how God would want you to live, the things that God would want you to participate in or not participate, all of this advantage, and yet you did not apply it to your own self. You were so good at knowing what everyone else would do. Look here. That is the most typical characteristic of a religious person. I know what everyone else should do, although I'm not doing what I know I should be doing. Religious people are very good at calling the shots in everyone else's life, and yet they are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. This is really what Paul says. So that's number two. Notice their condemnation. Notice their condemnation. Thou therefore teachest another, and teachest thou not thyself. Paul has posed it in a question. He's wanting some introspection. Do you find yourself going around telling everybody else what to do, but you don't, you don't do what you even tell them that they're supposed to be doing? It's a way of saying, you're really good at talking the talk, but not walking the walk, right? It's like you're really good at preaching the sermon. You're just not practicing what you preach. You ever heard that phrase before? Practice what you preach, right? Where'd that come from? It came from right here, from Paul, right? He says you're really good at telling everybody else what they ought to be doing in their lives, and yet your very life is not doing the things that God in his word has revealed to you to do. Paul gets very personal. He uses this word. Do you see this word? Thou. Verse number 21. Thou, therefore. He's like, that, that's the word you. Look at verse number 22. Thou. Look at verse number 23. Thou. Look at verse number 24. Through you. Okay, so look. He got very, very personal, didn't he? He wasn't talking like these broad senses. He wasn't saying, well, you know... There are some people out there, right? You ever heard somebody talk like that? Well, you know, there's some people out there that do these things. No, Paul goes, no, no, and you, you, you. And then finally again, four verses in a row, he points his finger right to the religious person. He says, this is, this is you. His message is very personal. And this is what religious people do not like. They do not like a personal message. Why? Because their identity is always built on this pretense they think that they are doing good. They've convinced themselves that they are doing good. And they cannot handle the reality of somebody taking their finger and going, yes, you know God's word. You've memorized God's commandments. You've even gone to church. But what difference has God's word actually made in your life? They're overly sensitive because their identity is built on all these preconceived ideas. Listen, what, you want to see if you're guilty of this? Oh, here's, here, watch this. When someone confronts you about a mistake that you made or about a sin that you've committed or about an attitude that you've had, when someone confronts you about that, do you get overly defensive? It's a really good indicator that you have religion, but you have no relationship with God. It's a really good indicator that you're guilty of telling everyone else what to do, but you yourself are not following it. If your immediate reaction, when someone confronts you and goes, hey, listen, there's some stuff that you said, or here's this spirit that I've seen, or here's how you've treated your wife, or here's what you're doing with your children, or I saw you take some extra stuff out of the cash register, or here's this thing, and you immediately go, whoa, 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 who do you think you are? Well, you got problems too. And that's the natural diversion, right? Well, you got problems too, right? It's certainly true. 
I'll be the first one to tell you, I have all kinds of problems. Amanda will gladly give you the list of all the problems I have. And naturally, religious people, it's immediate, their immediate response. It's not me, it's you. Well, you want to talk, well, you think you're perfect? But Paul isn't claiming perfection. In fact, in fact, Paul will tell you, I am the chiefest among sinners. Paul has a great understanding of who he is. Paul says, you only know half of the wrong that I've done. You only know half of the errors that I've made. If you could see into my heart and to my mind who I actually am, you wouldn't stick around for the rest of the sermon. But before you judge me too quickly, let's turn that light, let's turn that spotlight back into your own heart because you are guilty of this very same thing. Notice, which teachest another and teachest not thyself. Paul says you use, look here, you use the truth to condemn others. You use the truth to condemn others. This is what religiousness does. It uses the truth in order to condemn. Divine love uses the truth in order to bless. Religiousness uses the truth in order to exalt self. In order to make ourselves feel good about who we are, about the things we've done, about the mistakes we we have to turn this and use the truth to attack everyone else. And notice, in the end, it makes them very hypocritical. Why? Because their behavior does not match their belief. Notice how he runs right through the list. Look at verse number 21. Thou that preachest a man should not steal. Look here. Do you steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through the breaking of the law, you dishonor God. He asks three questions. Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do you rob temples? Do you have idols? And you make your boast in the law of God. You think that somehow, that you, because you know it, and yet you are not doing it, that this somehow exempts you from the judgment that there is to come in this life. Notice there, you dishonorest. God. This is quite literally the really big, really big theological word here, nomianism, right? Which means I'm really, really proud of all the rules that I keep, and yet I have no relationship with God Himself. So in spite of their heritage and in spite of their knowledge and in spite of all that they have learned and in spite of all that they have taught, there is actually no security. They actually have no confidence that they are ready for eternity. Why? Because even their very lives are not living up to the things that they say everyone else should do. By the way, this type of person is always very insecure. When you're counting on your own goodness to get you into heaven, you really never know if you're good enough. Right? You really never know if you're confident enough. You really never know if you've done enough. That's why when you hear of somebody else doing something good, you cannot rejoice with them. You must go, oh, well, I know stuff about her. Well, did you know sister so-and-so did this? Well, let me tell you what I know about her, because that's really bad. That would never happen in church, right? Now we're all smarter than that, aren't we? And this is what we do. We never really know if, we're, if we've done enough. We really never know if we've had enough. So they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise, Paul says. 
Is it not a good thing to do walking around always trying to measure up? Why? Because you never really know if you've ever actually got enough done. Somebody else can't do more good than I've done. And if somebody has done less, I feel better about myself. Ha ha, I did more than you. Ha ha, I'm more spiritual than you. Ha ha, I'm closer to Jesus than you. And if somebody's done more, well, if you knew what I know about them. You see how that works? This person, ha ha, they're not enough. That person, they're terrible. They're a really terrible person. And now I'm always having to battle this insecurity in my relationship with God. Never really comfortable. Never really confident. Never really prepared. Never standing strong in my identity, who I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if your identity is this, I'm the chiefest among sinners, then you're pretty good. If your identity is but by the grace of God, there go I, then you're pretty good. But if your identity is, look at all I've done, look at all the work I have, look at all look how good of a person I am, look at all the rules I obey, look at all the things I've participated in, if that is where your confidence is, then you're actually not very secure in who you are or in who your relationship with God is. Notice third, last one. Notice the conclusion. This is verse 25 to 29. There are a couple really key words. Look at verse 28, verse 29. Here are the key words. I want you to circle them, and I'll just explain this part, and then we'll be done. Look at verse 28 and 29. Here's the key word in verse 28. Outwardly. I want you to circle that word, outwardly. Outwardly. Look at the verse number 29. Here's another key word. Inwardly. I want you to circle that word, inwardly. Outwardly and inwardly. So he's talking about the difference between outward practice and an inward relationship. He's talking about the difference between outward practices, outward behavior, and an inward relationship which someone possesses. So he uses, by way of illustration, this thing called circumcision. Circumcision was given to the Jews as a sign that they had this faith in the Lord, and the Lord had given to them this very special and unique relationship. It symbolized, doesn't do, this doesn't do for our day and age, but in their day, it symbolized a commitment to God. It symbolized, in particular, their commitment to God. Someone said circumcision was like the wedding ring of Judaism. Okay, imagine this, this wedding ring on my finger. Say this, this wedding ring on my finger. This wedding ring is a sign. Now what is this, what is this, what is this ring? What is this band? What is it a sign of? It's a sign that I've made a commitment to Amanda. It's a sign that I've made a promise to her. So I wear a band as a sign. I wear a ring as a sign. And it is a sign of the commitment or of the covenant or of the vow that I've made. What was that vow? That vow, that promise, that covenant was that I belonged to one woman. And that I would forsake all other women in order to be with her. And that she was forsaking all other men in order to be with me. And we made this promise, we made this covenant, and we entered into it together. But, but hear me, but hear me on this. This band, or the one on your finger, is only as good, is only as good as the commitment that you keep. The band does nothing if you are not also committed in your life. 
He goes, well, he bought me the biggest rock, and it sparkles in a thousand different ways. Oh, look at, look at my ring. You see all these, the, these engaged couples. Oh, look at my ring. You know, they're doing this. They don't, they, don't, they don't tell you. They just walk up and like, oh, hey, pastor, how are you? I'm like, what's going on? And I'm just standing here. It's just nothing happened this weekend for me. Is there a fly in front of you? I don't know what you're doing. Is there a fly? No, he, he asked me to marry him. Oh, wow, look at that. Wow, what a nice, what nice cubic zirconium. That's amazing. <laughs> he must really love you. Nothing says I love you more than that. Oh, look, look, right? And now, now watch. We, we become so, we become so, man, proud. We become, become so in, enraptured. We become so attracted to, wow, look at this, look at this ring. Look at, but listen, it means nothing without the commitment. Say, hey, babe, look, I got you the biggest ring in the entire jewelry store. So here you go. Now here's the thing. I need Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays to myself. How many of you know she's going to take that ring and pawn it? She's not going to give it back. She's going to pawn it. Why? Because the sign is only as good as the commitment that follows the sign. And that's the same thing Paul is saying. He's saying circumcision outwardly means nothing inwardly if you are not also following the Lord by faith through grace. There's no difference. There's no difference because you have a ring on your finger. If you're not committed in your heart, it does not mean anything. It's empty. It's simply a symbol. You can substitute in the back half of this, ver of this chapter, you can substitute the word circumcision. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. But you can substitute it for any religious word. You can substitute the word circumcision for anything. You could use the word like baptism. You could use the word like communion. You could use a word like confirmation. You could use a word like the Lord's table. You could use a word like offerings. You could use a word like service. You could use a word like singing in the choir. All of these things. Being baptized does not save you. Living right does not save you. Doing good does not save you. Participating in the Lord's table does not save you. Joining a church does not save you. Giving money does not save you. Loving others does not save you. If salvation was of your own doing, it would then result in works. It would then be something that you could boast of of your own. And there is no boasting in salvation except for in the Lord Jesus Christ. Religious rituals without the reality of a relationship with Jesus is worthless. Look here. Religious rituals without the reality of a relationship with Jesus is worthless. Religion cannot change you. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change you, to save you, and to prepare you for the day that you will stand in front of God. So let's read verse 28 and 29 in a more, in a more understanding way. 
for he is not a Jew. Okay, look here. So he is not a believer. He is not a person of God. He is not a Christian, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Watch. Neither is that baptism, something that happened outwardly. Neither is that Lord's table, something that happened outwardly. Neither is that enough. That outward in the first is not good enough. Look what he says. Circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. Whose praise is not of men, but of God. Our identity, okay? Baptized, the Lord's table, your wedding band. Our identity offers no advantage to us unless it is an accurate description of our heart. Our identity offers us no advantage unless it actually describes our heart. So Paul's conclusion is, the outward condition of man is not the way that we judge righteousness. This is an easier way to understand this. What makes you a Christian? What makes you a child of God? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're ready for eternity? Where is your confidence that you are ready to stand in front of a holy, living, eternal God? I ask this in two ways. First, where is your confidence for eternity? If you were to stand in front of God by the end of the day today, and God were to look at you and ask you, why should I let you in to heaven? Why should I give you access to eternal life? What would your answer be? What would your boast be? What would, you, what would, your, look, what would your passport be? God were to look at you and say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you pull out as proof that God would actually let you in? Any other answer except by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not enough. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, my sincere prayer for you is that before you leave today that you would come to an understanding of all that God did for you by way of Jesus Christ in order to gain you access into heaven. Now please do not leave today without seeing me or one of our pastors. And let us take the Bible and show you from the Bible how you can know that heaven is your home, your sins are forgiven, and that your eternal destiny is secured in Christ. But I ask this question in another way. Where is your boast? What are you confident in? Not just for eternity, but in your everyday life. Are you dependent on God? We live in this self-sufficient, self-sustaining world where we like to do it our own way. We like to call our own shots. We like to be our own masters. We like to be the captain of our own fate. You don't want anybody telling me what to do or where to go. And yet, man, as religious, church-going people, we have all the knowledge of God, even able to discern between right and wrong. And yet, what difference has it made on our lives? How is your marriage different because of what you know about God? 
How is your parenting different because of what you know about God? How is your friending different because of who God has revealed himself to be in his word and because of the promises that he gives you in his word? How do you handle your money differently because you know the living God of the universe? Where is your boast? Where is your confidence? Where is your security? Where do you find your identity in this world? Do you find it in yourself? Or do you find it in God and in God alone? I stand wholeheartedly with Paul. In me, that is, in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. The only good thing about David Delaney is the Lord Jesus Christ. And any good that I do in parenting, and any good that I do in pastoring, and any good that I do in husbanding a man, and any good that I do in friending, any good that I do is simply because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all the glory that belongs to the Lord, and all the honor that belongs to the Lord, and all the praise that belongs to the Lord. So whatever we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, let us do all to the honor and the glory of God. What is your confidence, not just for eternity, but what is your confidence for your everyday living?